Man, that was amazing. Thank you guys for leading us in that. Will you pray with me as we enter into the, the preaching of God's word here today? Father, we just thank you for a great time of worship, Lord. I am almost out of breath with how great that worship time was. Lord, we do pray as we turn now to hearing from your word that we wouldn't so much lay down all the trials and struggles and fears and anxieties that we have that are maybe stoked by this time of year, but Lord, we pray that we would pick them up and bring them to you, Lord, as we hear from your word, God, we ask that you would give us encouragement, God, give us peace, God, give us courage to face the future. Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us today and that your voice would be louder than anything in this world, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. I'm so glad you guys made it to church today. It is so good to take the time to worship and to hear from God's word today. And I have the pleasure of sharing God's word with you. But my first question, which is just going to be a show of hands, please, is does anyone have a New Year's resolution? Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share it. Please just raise a hand. Wow, only a few people. Only, well, okay, now they're starting to go up because you guys weren't really listening, but that's okay. Yeah, so <laughs> lots of New Year's resolutions in the room. You know, New Year's resolutions are really interesting because you ever notice, and maybe this is going to be like, duh, to you, but do you ever notice that New Year's resolutions are usually about you? They're usually about yourself. They're like, I want to do this thing or stop doing this other thing. I want to change this about me. I want to add this into my life. I want to move away from this other type of thing. You know, it's always kind of about me. It's about what I want to do. It's what, how I want to be different, how I want to change in this new year. And then the other thing you notice about New Year's resolutions is that they almost never work, right? But I think that, uh, that it's so interesting to be thinking about the new year and thinking about, you know, because we are on the eve of New Year's Eve or the eve eve of New Year's Eve. It's coming up this week. It's coming soon. And it's this time of year that we really start to think a lot about ourselves. We start to think about who I want to be, what I want to change, th- things that I want to be different about me in this new arbitrary year marker that we've set here in the middle of the winter. Um, and we're thinking about the future. We're thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about our identities. And that's what I want to talk about today is identity. Entity. And so I want to ask, want you to ask yourself as we start here today, how much time do you spend thinking about your identity? How much time do you spend really thinking about who am I? And more so thinking about what kind of person do I want to show the world that I am? Because I think if we're really honest with ourselves, so much of the decisions we make in the life that we live are governed by this attitude of, I want to make sure I'm putting out the right sort of image to the people in my life. The clothes I wear, the things I say, the car I drive, the house that I live in, the way that I take care of my house or don't take care of my house. So much of it is this bidding war in your mind between the things that you want and the things that you want other people to think about you. And you can think about the phenomenon of social media as just the great crystallization of all of these anxieties about what people think about me so that I can put out this edited, curated version of myself for people to see. I can post the right kind of pictures. I can put the right little quotes in there. I can try to make other people jealous with my vacations and my family and the things that I'm doing. And all of this just goes to show how obsessed our world is with identity with ourselves, with the version of ourselves that we put out there in the world. And in the midst of this identity-obsessed world, I believe that the Word of God and what it has to say about our identities can speak loudly and clearly in this world. 
And so today we're going to look at that perfect word of God. We're going to see what it has to say. And my big idea for today, what the word says about identity, is that you were created to find your identity in God. You're created to find your identity in God. And don't just take that as kind of this easy statement. There's a lot of important intentionality there that you are meant to find your identity in God. You're not meant to take this idea of God and this religion and then build an identity out of that. You're not meant to add that into your identity. You're meant to find something in God that contributes to your sense of yourself and the way that you see yourself and the way that others see you as well. And so let's look at this passage of scripture today from the book of Romans, where the apostle Paul really explains who we are as God's people. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. It's a short passage, but there's a lot in there for the way that we see ourselves in the world. Let's read it. Uh, I'm going to read it, and uh, please follow along on the screen or in your bulletins today. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I want to take this very interesting passage here that is so full and so saturated with truth, and I want to walk through it a little bit at a time and see what God has to tell us about our identities. First thing that I see in here is that the obvious one, that you are God's adopted child. You are God's adopted child. Look again at verses 15 to 16. Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And he says, it's by that spirit of adoption that we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so the very first and very basic truth that we see in this passage is the one that really stabs you in the eyeballs as you're reading this text, which is that you are a child of God. You are an adopted child of God. And so the first question I want to ask is that if Paul is using adoption here as this key image of what it is to be a Christian, what it is to live the Christian life, then we should ask the question, why adoption? Why is it that Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit as he's writing this scripture, why is it that he appeals to this image of adoption to show us what it is to live the Christian life, what it is to be made right with God? Well, the first thing you want to notice about adoption, and really the biggest thing that you would notice about adoption when you really think about it, is that adoption depends entirely on the will and the power of the parents. That the kid who is adopted has absolutely no say in whether he or she is adopted, especially at a very young age. You can't ask a little baby whether they want to be adopted. They just get adopted. You ever think about it that way? That the kid has very little ability to determine whether he or she will be adopted. It's all up to the parents. In fact, It's entirely up to the parents. It's entirely up to their will and their love and their desire to bring someone into their family. And so in the same way, you could say about our adoption by God that it doesn't depend on us at all. That there was nothing about you that God, when he determined to bring you into his family, there was nothing you did There was nothing so great about you or your personality or your character or your past or anything that you had done to earn his attention, but that God chose in his grace 
and in his sovereignty to bring you into his family anyway. In fact, the scripture says that there was nothing about us that would endear us to God Almighty, that we exist in rebellion against him, and that it is only his choice of us that allows us then to choose him back in return. And so adoption is powerful because it teaches us a very central truth about the Christian life, which is that you did not choose God. As much as it may feel like you may have chosen God, as much as you may want to believe that you had some great uh, idea about choosing God, that you had some superior knowledge, that you had some great way of finding your way to him, that ultimately God is the one who chose you, and that you never would have chosen him if he hadn't chosen you first. Your new life, your identity as a child of God is therefore a gift of God. You are adopted by him. You don't find your way to him he comes to you and brings you to himself. Second question I want to ask here is, how do I know God has adopted me? How do I know that God has adopted me? Because actually, a good portion of the scripture that we're looking at today is concerned with that very issue. Paul is trying to give encouragement to these Roman believers in the, in the church in Rome. He's trying to give them encouragement to know that they are the adopted children of God. And the evidence that he gives them is very interesting. You see, in the Bible, the Bible says that we are all born sinners, that we are born in a state of rebellion against God, that on our own, apart from God, we are unable to please God. We are unable to choose right. We are unable to live lives that are pleasing to him. And because of sin, because of that rebellion we have against God, we can't enter into a relationship with him. We're alienated from him. There's a barrier between us and a loving and holy and perfect God because of our sin. And there's nothing in us that would drive us to seek God. That's what the scripture tells us, that there is no one in this whole world who in their own self decided to seek after God, but that he uh, sought after us first. And it's in that context that Paul says this in verse 15. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom, and that whom there is the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So, the, even though there's nothing in us that would seek after God, the moment that you believe in God, the moment that you accept Jesus Christ, that you begin the Christian life, God is already calling you to himself. God is having an effect on you that he is drawing you to himself. And it is his spirit, his Holy Spirit, that calls us to do that. He is the one, the Bible says, that actually prompts us in the first place to cry out to God as Abba, Father. That it's not our own spirits that call us to do that, but it's his spirit working within us. And here's the thing. That term Abba there, or Abba, if you're a fan of uh, 70s music, is uh, <laughs> that might be a little early, I don't know. Um, anyway, <laughs> that word Abba is not just the word for father, but it's actually a very familiar term. It's a term of endearment in Hebrew for dad or papa. It's not just, in other words, that God is saying that when we're adopted, when he adopts us, when he brings us into his family, when he makes us his sons and daughters, that it's just this legal standing that we're just considered the sons and daughters of God, but that he actually becomes our loving father. He becomes our dad. He becomes our papa because not only does he just want to save us from sin, but he wants to bring us into this loving relationship with himself, which has been his plan from the very beginning. And so we are made the children of God by his spirit speaking to us and speaking through us. But then also in verse 16, we added in that it says the spirit himself 
bears witness with our own spirit that we are children of God. And so you have this very interesting image here that we receive the Holy Spirit from God who comes and indwells us and prompts us to call out, to cry out to God as our Abba Father, as our Papa, as our Dad. But then also our own spirit joins in and they both in unison cry out to God together. Isn't that a cool image to say that God's spirit has such an effect on me that not only does he, does he bring that to me and draw me to God, but he actually changes my heart and changes my spirit, which was in rebellion against him, which was lost in sin, and actually brings it to a place where it can cry out to God from within me. This is a powerful and amazing verse of scripture. Therefore, you know you have been adopted by God when you cry out to him. That word for by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that word for cry, almost every single time it's used in the New Testament, that word refers to crying out because you're afraid, because you're in danger. You can go through all of the different times that that Greek word is used, and every single time, almost every single time, it refers to something scary, something dangerous is happening, and the people cried out for help. They cried out to someone. And so what you see here is that the sign that you've been adopted by God, that you truly are in that loving father-son, father-daughter relationship with your God, is that when things scare you, When life gets difficult, when anxiety and fear come around, when you're facing trials and temptations, who do you cry out to? If God is the one that you seek when you most need help, then that's a sign that you have that relationship with God. And furthermore, think about it. Think about when you're in trouble, when you're in danger, what is your reaction? Who do you look to? What do you look to for deliverance and for salvation and for help? And that is the thing that is shaping your identity. That is the thing that is determining who you are in your life. And if it's not God, as we'll see in a moment, then it is a destructive and dangerous thing to be basing your identity upon. We move on here, and and we actually see that Paul doesn't merely state that we're God's children. He doesn't just tell us that, but he actually gives us this note of what is the significance of being made the adopted children of God. Look at verse uh, 17. It says, Paul says, if we're children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so, as God's child, you are also his heir. You stand to inherit something from God. And so the the image here of adoption goes even further in the scriptures. Paul even drills down even further to say that if you are a child of God, then you stand to gain something from God because he is your father. You stand to get an inheritance. And so the first question we want to ask is, what in the world does it mean to be an heir of God? Because it's it's not a very tight metaphor, right? Because normally you inherit something from someone when they die, right? And God is going to go on forever and ever. He's eternal. He will never die. And so how is it that we are heirs of God? Well, to be an heir of God is, is um, actually explained even further in another one of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, let no one boast in men. Then he says, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and there he's mentioning Christian leaders, so he says they are yours, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And so very interesting image here. Here Paul is spelling it out for us. Being God's heir 
means that everything that belongs to him belongs to you. Don't miss the significance of that statement, that to be God's heir means everything that belongs to him belongs to you. Well, how does that work? (laughs) Why is that significant? Well, this means that if you belong to God and everything else in this world belongs to him also, then there is absolutely nothing in this world for you to fear. And there's absolutely nothing in this world for you to work for. Everything belongs to you because you belong to God and everything belongs to him. What we see here are two of the key facts about God, two of the key theological truths about God pushed together to make a very amazing statement in the scriptures. First of all, his omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, that everything belongs to him, that there's nothing outside of his reach, that he can do anything at any time, that he is totally in control of all things. His omnipotence in the Old Testament is spelled out by saying that the earth is the Lord's, that it belongs to him, and everything in it, the cattle on a thousand hills, that everything belongs to God, even in the abstract sense, that he holds the world in his hands, but also the individual things, the cattle on a thousand hills, everything you own, everything you are, everything you see, and touch, all of it belongs to our Father God. And then you pair that omnipotence with what's called God's omnibenevolence, which means that he is all-loving, that he is wholly good, that he is wholly blessing, that he is always giving, that he is always pouring out blessings upon his people. When you put those two things together, you get a very cool image of who our God is, that everything belongs to him, that nothing is outside his reach, that he can do anything, and that he only loves you, that he only wants to bless you, that he only wants to pour out all his love upon you. He is omnipotent, and he is omnibenevolent, and when you put those two things together, you see why he is the perfect and loving father. And so what does it mean to be God's heir? Well, basically, it means you're sitting pretty. It means you have nothing to worry about. It means there is not a single thing for you to fear in this world because your God can do anything and he loves you and he'll protect you and he wants the best for you. What does it mean then to be glorified with God? Because the scripture here says that we may also be glorified with him. And so something with our inheritance has to do with this thing called glorification. Paul says our adoption by God leads us to being glorified with God. And a couple verses later in the same chapter, he reveals what it means to be glorified. Look at uh, verse 29 in chapter 8. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so working that out a little bit, it shows that God knew who we would be. God saw through all of history because he knows all things. And he chose us, he predestined us to be his children, to be adopted. And that adoption means that we're conformed, that we're brought into the likeness of the image of Jesus Christ. And so to be conformed literally means to look like God. It means that we are made glorified, means that we're conformed to him, which means that we look like him. And there's a couple different ways that that happens. First of all is physical glorification. That one of the promises of Scripture, one of, our, one of our, uh, the aspects of our inheritance as children of God is that we will be made to look like Jesus Christ physically. Now, before you start thinking that that means you've got to grow a beard and start wearing sandals and you know, just letting your mind run wild in that way, what this means is that in the same way that Jesus Christ died 
and then rose again, and when he rose again, he had this perfected resurrection body, this glorified body, in the same way that when you and I die, when any Christian dies in this world, we await the return of Jesus Christ, and when he comes back, we will be made like him in the sense that we will also have these renewed, restored, resurrection, glorified bodies, that we will look like Jesus Christ. And that's something that we wait for. That's an inheritance that we don't get yet. But there's also spiritual glorification, which means that we will spiritually resemble Jesus. Just as Jesus was completely obedient in his life on earth, just as he never sinned, as he never gave into temptation, we will be made to be like that as well. That when Jesus comes back and we are brought to be with him and when we exist with him throughout eternity, We will never again be tempted by sin. We will never again sin. We will never move away from God. We will never be in rebellion against him, but we will live this perfect obedience to God forever and ever and ever. And so this shows us that the inheritance we have because of our adoption by God is essentially hope, that we have this amazing hope that while our bodies now decay and die and they get sick and they get tired and they get old and they break down, that someday we will never again experience those things because our bodies will be glorified like Jesus' body. But then also, in the same way that we are tempted and that we are, we are sinners and that we find ourselves addicted and we find ourselves wandering and in rebellion against God, that there will come a day when we will be in perfect obedience to God with a perfect relationship to him as our loving father forever and ever and ever. And so part of this inheritance that we receive is just this amazing hope of our coming glorification. Next question, what does it mean to suffer with God? Because you notice that in the passage, he doesn't just say that we get to be glorified with God, but he says, provided that, provided we suffer with him. That you and I will be glorified with God, but it's on the provision that we suffer with Jesus Christ. How does that work? What does that mean? Um, Look at, uh, again, at um, 2 Corinthians now, chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, he's saying that this life, which he calls a light and momentary affliction, which doesn't always feel like a light and momentary affliction. Our life can feel like a heavy and a persistent and an ongoing forever burden, an affliction that we will never be rid of until death. But what Paul is saying here is that as bad as life may be, as much may be thrown at you during the entire course of your life with, with illness and with dread and with pain and with, with loss, all of those things, when you compare them to the, to the weight of glory, to the amazing thing that is coming for you after this life, then this life looks like a light and momentary affliction. That it's not even worth comparing those two things, the scripture says, because this inheritance we have with God is so much greater. And so what does it mean to suffer with God? Well, it just means to live this life. That you are God's child now, but you will suffer in this life. He doesn't want you to suffer. He suffers alongside you as you suffer, but you will suffer because we're still in this world And Jesus hasn't yet come back to make an end to all sin and suffering and shame. But he will. And in the meantime, we suffer so that when he comes back, we can be glorified with him forever. I want to give us a really very simple application today. Um, And I'm going to use something to illustrate this. The main point that I want you to take home with you is that we want to build 
your identity on God. I'm going to build your identity on God. I think that a lot of times we have a faulty understanding of identity in our minds because of the way the world thinks about identity. This is typically, I think, how the world would think about identity, is that you have all these separate characteristics that you bring together, and those characteristics, the sum of them all together is who you are. It's your identity. So think about it this way. Uh, One characteristic that we often make part of our identities is our job or your career, right? So you have this job that you worked so hard for, that maybe you went to school for, that maybe you've been uh, working at for a long time, and you put a lot of your sense of your self-worth and your ability to do that job and to do it well. You do that job every day. And statistics say we spend about a third of our lives working. And so this is a huge part of our identities. And so we put that there. And we're proud of that. And we hold on to that. And, and for some of us, it can even become too much of our sense of identity. And so that's one of the things. Another one that plays into this sense of you know, our identity is your spouse, the person that you decide to spend your life with, or for those of you who aren't married, it can even be uh, a boyfriend or girlfriend. It can be that kind of relationship that you put so much weight into that one person that you come to the point where you don't know who you are without that person, that you are so dependent on that person that you don't know what you would do without them. And so that becomes part of your identity. When you think of yourself, you think of yourself as connected to that other person. Another one that's really big, especially I think in Spokane, are kind of our hobbies or leisure activities, right? Because this is something that especially in Spokane where we, you know, really try to enjoy the two weeks of summer that we get every year. I mean, this is something that can be so big. You know, people who live for the lake, right? People who live to be outside, who live for biking or hiking or running or camping or boating or all of those kind of outdoor leisure activities. But even, and conclude with all of those things, just uh, working around the house, making improvements on your home, working in the yard, shoveling your driveway in the winter, mowing your lawn in the summer, all of those things, those sort of leisure activities can play into how I see myself, how I put together my identity. And then finally, sometimes one of the aspects of our identity would be our faith, that you add into all of those other things, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I go to church. Um, I want to raise my kids in that way. Sometimes I read my Bible. I try to pray sometimes. And so that becomes maybe the fourth and final addition to your mix of all your, uh, of all the, your uh, attributes, your characteristics, and on top of those things, you build your identity. And so there you have it. Your identity supported by all of these things. On top, you have your sense of self, and all of those things support it. All of those things give credence to it. Well, here's the problem with that model. Here's the problem with seeing your identity and yourself through your characteristics and your attributes. What happens when you lose your job? When suddenly you get laid off, or maybe your job disappears entirely. What happens when you get hurt on the job and you can't work anymore and that's taken away? Well, if you're lucky, you've got all these other things that are contributing to your sense of self-worth. You've got all these other things that are part of your identity. And so it leaves a hole, it leaves a gap, but you're still, you're still sitting fine. You're still okay. You're still going to make it through. Well, what then happens when that person that relationship that was everything to you goes away. So often that happens through divorce, through broken relationships, and if not that, then death. People, are, people in their lives on earth are temporary. They won't always be around. And so what happens when that relationship goes away? 
Well, again, maybe you've got other things that contribute to that sense of identity, and so you're still doing okay. But again, there's a hole there. There's a gap there. But what then happens is you get older, and this is one that I've seen so many times in our church and outside of our church. What happens is you get older, and you can't do the things that you love to do anymore. What happens is you get older, and suddenly you can't go to the lake as much. You can't go skiing. You can't even shovel your driveway, maybe. What happens as you more and more find yourself needing to rest and to nap and to take medications in order to just keep yourself going through all of those things? Well, sometimes that can be the thing, or any one of these things going away could be the thing that makes it all come crashing down. When your life, when your identity consists of all your attributes, you are in a precarious position because every single one of those things could go away at any moment. Here's another way to think about it. When you begin your identity as a child of God, you're on a much better footing and a much better foundation. You can say, I still have my career, and I still love my career. I still find a lot of worth in what I do, but now I partake in that career as a child of God. And I can be a child of God in any career, any job, any manner of life that is assigned to me in this life, I can do it as a child of God. And so it doesn't make your career less important, but maybe even more important, because now what you do has eternal significance. Now what you do means, not, means things not only for you and for your family, but also to God. You can pursue your work as an act of worship and an act of service to God. What about your relationship? When you have a marriage or you have a dating relationship that's based on you being a child of God, it affects not only your choice of mate, but also the way that you live together. That you see that relationship as something that glorifies God, something that brings him glory, that brings him praise. All of that changes when you begin with a different basis. And then you add everything else in. Everything in my life is defined by the fact that I'm a child of God. And here's the beautiful thing about this way of thinking. I can lose my job, I can get fired or laid off, and it may hurt, it will hurt, it does leave a gap, but it doesn't threaten the rest of my sense of myself, because I'm not built on that. I can lose these key, important relationships in my life, and it will hurt, and it will leave a gap in my life, but notice, nothing's coming crumbling down because I'm built on God and him alone. Build your identity on God, because everything in this world is transient. Everything can and will go away. But your adoption by God is final and forever and eternal. And when you build on that identity, you know you're on a firm foundation. Let's pray. I want to encourage you as we go to worship to just return again to thinking about this time of year and thinking about the, uh, all the resolutions and all the changes that you may want to make in your life and all the different ways that you're thinking about how this year could be better than last year. And I just want to encourage you that as we go to worship to really just be thinking about that. Really be considering as you think about yourself and how you want to change yourself, can you pursue changes and resolutions this year that bring you closer to God? Can you pursue the kind of life this year, the kind of resolutions this year that will reinforce that firm foundation that you are a child of God? I want to ask you, will you commit 
this year to different kind of resolutions like going to church, being more consistent in your worship of God and your fellowship with his people? Will you commit, will you resolve to be in the word, to hear God's voice in your life more often? Will you resolve to pray, to participate in a group, in community? Maybe you just need to say that I'm, I'm having a higher level of commitment to God and to his people and to his word this year. Maybe you need to commit to learn, to grow in your knowledge of the word so that you can grow in your faith. And maybe you just need to commit to grow in your faith, to ask God for more faith this year. And so I want you to pick those things up as we go to worship. Father God, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us now. God, as we lift up your name and praise, we do ask that you'd speak to us, Lord. God, show us where we lack you in our lives because we want the whole of our lives to be wholly surrendered to you. In Jesus' name, amen.